Hello and welcome to Since the World's Been Turning. This podcast series is a journey through history, one guided by the lyrics of Billy Joel's song, We Didn't Start the Fire. This episode explores one of the darkest versions of the American dream, the deadly world of the Mafia. For more than a century, the organised crime groups, also known as the Cosa Nostra, have inspired fear and fascination in America as they change and evolve along with society. We are joined by a very special guest, former journalist and accomplished author Jeff Schumacher, the Vice President of Exhibits and Programs at the Mob Museum in Las Vegas. The year is 1957. It's an overcast day in New York City, and cameras are flashing in the face of a young man in a smart overcoat who's just emerged from a police van. He's handcuffed, flanked by guards, who usher him quickly towards a courthouse. Although he's not smiling, there's a calmness to him, a trace of satisfaction on his heavyset face. He takes his time, glancing straight into the cameras, confident, unafraid. This is the former boxer Vincent Chin Giganti, and he's accused of the attempted murder of a man called Frank Costello, head of the Luciano crime family. Vincent's been in trouble with the law since he was a boy, but he's not going to jail this time. Frank Costello will lie and pretend he doesn't recognise the man who shot him. Who are the Luciano family? And just how did Giganti come to be involved with them? The story begins decades earlier, when mafia families from Sicily, the island to the south of Italy, began to arrive in the United States. Our guest, Jeff Schumacher, talks about the origins of the mafia. So the mafia is primarily Italian-American individuals who are part of what goes back, uh, you know, many generations in Italy, especially in Sicily, as sort of an underground society that it, it originated not so much to to make money, which is how it evolved in America, but to uh, to sort of fight back against oppressive government regimes, right? Um, Sicily had a, uh, it was just overrun again and again and again over the centuries, really, by different kinds of rulers, different kinds of uh, invaders. And so the people of Sicily said, you know what, we need to protect ourselves, we need a way to uh, to to deal with this problem that we keep encountering, and so that the the result of that was the mafia. When the when some of these uh, Italians immigrated to the United States in the late eighteen hundreds and early nineteen hundreds, uh, they brought this tradition with them, and the way it manifested in America was really more in the criminal area, and. It had a lot to do with the fact that Italian Americans were discriminated against. Uh, they were uh, treated like second-class citizens. They got the worst housing, uh, the worst jobs, and so forth. And there were, you know, some of them said, "You know what? We need to find another way to achieve the American dream, as it were." And they uh, went toward, you know, crime. 
and and the mafia was a really convenient way for them to organize. The man who gives his name to the Luciano family, Salvatore Luciano, arrives in Manhattan with his Sicilian parents around 1906. They are law-abiding and want a good life for their son, but Salvatore, later known as Charles and as Lucky, is a bit of a rebel. After dropping out of school and then quitting his first job, the teenager becomes involved in the notorious Five Points gang. It's not long before he's extorting money from other boys, and by the time World War I draws to a close, in 1919, he's deeply involved in the New York underworld. Jeff Schumacher gives us some insights into the underbelly of the city, where immigrants and first-generation Americans scramble to make a living. Starting in the 1840s with immigration from Ireland, later immigration of Italians as well as Eastern European Jews. These were all people who emigrated to the U.S. but were not particularly welcome here by the people who are already here. And so they were forced into very tough situations and very gritty neighborhoods, you know, a lot of a lot of poverty, a lot of desperation, and did not have the opportunity to have the best jobs. And so you see the development of, of organized crime groups that are strictly Jewish. There are others that are strictly Irish, and those are strictly Italian. For whatever reason, you know, these are the prominent groups as opposed to other immigrant groups at that time. Uh, who engaged in uh, these were the ones that were engaging in what we, you know, consider organized crime, and um, they in the early years, I think, we're really talking about the 1800s and into the early 1900s. You did not see a lot of these were rivals. They did not really get along. Um, they did not join forces, uh, work together in any way. They were definitely rivals with territories that they were protecting. This started to change during Prohibition because there was so much money to be, to be made by so many people, and it became like a national effort that you saw more cooperation among the you know the Jews and the Irish and the Italians, and and then you also saw other people coming in, people of other ethnicities becoming involved in organized crime as well. You know, African-Americans became involved in prohibition. Germans were very big in prohibition. You know, other kinds, all basically anybody who, want, who was willing to be, to be working in this underworld uh, was, it was open, it was open season, really. Everybody had a chance. Even though you couldn't, if you worked with the mafia, you weren't in the mafia. That's the thing about, particularly about uh, the mafia is that, uh, you have to be Sicilian at that point to really be in the mafia. You, we may work with you as an associate of some sort, but we're not going to allow you to be part of our part of our group. Early activities the mafia are involved in include opium trafficking, hijacks, robberies, counterfeiting, and kidnap and extortion, carried out by the terrifying Black Hand Society. But the introduction of Prohibition in 1920 changes that. 
Prohibition is backed by America's conservative Protestant population. But there are plenty of ordinary people who still just want to go to a bar and let their hair down, listen to some music, enjoy a drink or two. And the Mafia are more than willing to provide. Many famous figures, including Al Capone, come to prominence in this era. So, so prohibition was like the best thing that ever happened to the mob, right? Uh, this was the, uh, the making alcohol illegal to uh, manufacture, distribute, and sell. And uh, at the, even though America supported this 18th Amendment to, to create prohibition, it was it was a case where you know, a, a huge number of Americans still wanted to be able to drink alcohol and they wanted access to uh, to these products and to what it, all the environment that came with it, right? The saloons and so forth. So um, the mob recognized right away when prohibition went into effect that there was going to be a demand. And so they had the great opportunity to fulfill that demand. And so the mob got very involved early on with uh, bootlegging, which is making uh, liquor, you know, beer and liquor um, surreptitiously, and also rum running, which was, you know, importing, smuggling uh, good liquor, you know, into the United States from Canada, from the Bahamas, from Europe. And and so the mob was very involved in those two activities. And one of the ways that they made that work was by, you know, through corruption through public corruption, pay off politicians and judges and police officers to look the other way while they were uh, engaging this activity. And then the third element of it, the sort of third leg of the stool was that uh, the, the mob became very involved in operating speakeasies, which were underground saloons. They were really just a, a rethinking of how to do a a bar or a saloon, because all of them had closed. And speakeasies were where liquor was sold and where the mob really had this interesting role where they helped evolve the culture a little bit because they encouraged uh, women to come uh, to speakeasies, where before saloons were were largely the uh, domain of men. And um, so women now became involved, and it was a liberating experience for them in America in the 20s. And then the other element was they brought in jazz music and really helped to grow jazz as America's original art musical art form. So the mob had a, a lot of a lot of activity in, during Prohibition that helped grow the mafia, helped grow the mob. Uh, these guys went from street hustlers up to millionaires, literally. They were making so much money that they were able to move out of the ghettos, move into nice homes hobnob with society people, and um, it became uh, really just a, a growth engine for, for these organized crime groups. How was prohibition enforced? Special agents were created to tackle the problem, but they couldn't control the amount of illegal alcohol that was flowing through American cities. No one could curb the power of the mob. Jeff talks about the Prohibition Bureau and the difficulties agents faced. The federal government created the Prohibition Bureau and they hired Prohibition agents who were 
the goal was that they were going to enforce prohibition around America. And they did um, make arrests. They did um, shut down speakeasies here and there. But it was really a drop in the bucket compared to the amount of activity that was actually occurring because the Prohibition Bureau was, was small, it was underfunded, and the agents were not well-paid or well-trained. So because of that, they were very easily corrupted. You know, The mob could pay them far more than the federal government would pay them to look the other way, and so they often did. And they did not receive the training that came with typical law enforcement job where you really gain some real uh, commitment to enforcing the law. These were kind of like patronage jobs, meaning that if you know somebody, maybe your uncle was somebody who could get you a job because you were a ne'er-do-well and you didn't have a job, you know, that they'd make you a prohibition agent. And suddenly, you know, you're in this position of, of power but you really don't know what to do, what to do with it. So the, the Prohibition Bureau did not do a great job of enforcing prohibition. And local and state law enforcement agencies often left that job to the federal government because they didn't really want to do it. You know, it was not a very popular thing to shut down a speakeasy when there were a lot of prominent people inside the speakeasy enjoying themselves. Corruption was a huge part of prohibition. It was, there were a lot of people who were paid off to, uh, to allow this to happen. At the start of the prohibition era, Lucky Luciano starts working as a gunman for the powerful mafia boss Joe Masseria. He also comes to the attention of New York racketeer Arnold Rothstein, the gambler who's believed to be the inspiration for the Jewish master criminal Meyer Wolfsheim in the novel The Great Gatsby. Rothstein spots Luciano's potential and employs him and his friends in his bootlegging business, mentoring Lucky and teaching him how to charm and make a good impression. After Rothstein's death in 1928, Luciano returns to the Mafia, it's a hard life. Pictures of him taken after 1929 show his right eye is badly damaged from a gruesome murder attempt. Amidst ongoing gang warfare, Luciano betrays his boss in 1931 and takes his organization for himself, renaming it the Luciano family. After getting rid of Masseria's old rivals, he also abolishes the title the boss of bosses, and creates a governing commission instead, hoping to bring harmony to New York's five mafia families. Events take a turn for the worse, however, when Luciano is caught and sentenced to 30 years in jail in 1936 for running a prostitution ring. After being linked to the murder of a former friend in a cafe, his childhood friend and second-in-command Vito Genovese also has to leave New York. He flees to Italy, where he manages to befriend the dictator Benito Mussolini's son-in-law, supplying him with drugs. In their absence, it's Frank Costello who takes over. Frank has a head for figures, and his own specialty niche, slot machines and bookmaking. 
Luciano initially makes him the family's consigliere, a term many people have probably heard, but what does it really mean? Our guest Jeff takes us through how the mafia was structured. The mafia is structured uh, is very it's pretty consistent through the through the ages. They've got a boss or a don who is the uh, the patriarchal head of the mafia family. Word is 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 the final word on everything that happens. That boss has uh, two people who are very close to him. One is the underboss. This was his right-hand person, someone who is very powerful in his own right and who is probably the kind of the logical successor. So if the boss were to die in some way, then the underboss has a good chance of becoming the boss. Um, and then there's a consigliere, which is more of a like an advisor, right? So it's a lot of times the consigliere is well-versed in the law, well-versed in how uh, political corruption occurs, how how to buy people off, um, has these kind of skills and this this wisdom that is very valuable to the Don. And then below that, uh, below the underboss, you're going to have a uh, the capos. And capos are like captains. That's an American American way of saying capos. Captains who oversee street crews committing different kinds of crimes. So. You, the capos can be can be organized by territory, they often are, or they can be organized by the type of criminal work that they're doing. So somebody might be particularly good at at you know a certain kind of type of crime, and so then they are um, they're focused on that. Um, they may commit that crime all over the place. More likely, they're divided up by territories. And so there's the capo who's in charge of a crew, and within the crew you have what basically are generally called soldiers, and soldiers are often made men, meaning they're part of the mafia, uh, but they do the dirty work. You know, they do the hard work of actually doing the robberies and actually uh, doing the killings and whatnot. And then you have what they typically are described as associates. And associates are people who are not, they may be very good at, at being criminals and they are part of the, the crew that the capo has put together, but they are not members of the mafia. So it's possible that they are just working their way up to becoming mafia members, to becoming made, as they say, or they might not have the right ethnic background for that. So that, let's say, they might be only part Italian, or they might be from another part of Italy, or they might not be Italian at all. They're just really good at being criminals. And so they want to associate with them and work with them, but they don't want, they're not ultimately going to become part of the mafia. As Frank Costello takes care of the Luciano family's business in America, Vito Genovese is profiting from the tides of war. When the American troops arrive in Italy, it doesn't take him long to abandon his fascist comrades and offer his services to the Americans. Unaware of his history, the Americans use him as an interpreter and liaison officer. They're taken by surprise when he's caught stealing and selling their trucks, flour and sugar. In war-ravaged Italy, however, 
there are more important issues to deal with than Genovese, but his past is slowly beginning to catch up with him. Investigators realise he's also wanted for murder, and when he arrives back in the US in 1945, he's arrested. However, two witnesses are murdered before his trial begins, so the court has no choice but to let him go. Meanwhile, Lucky Luciano, who helped the authorities during the war, is released from jail. The only condition of his release is that he must return to his birth country. Stranded in Italy, he manages to stay involved in the business, but he doesn't have the level of control he once had. Here, Jeff Schumacher tells us about the way the Mafia and their associates would sometimes move between the two countries. The, the Mafia in, in America and in Sicily were, were closely connected. Uh, there was a lot of communication back and forth. There were a lot of people going back and forth, traveling back and forth. So what would happen is if a member of the Mafia in America got in trouble or he was wanted, by the police, he might flee on a boat back to Sicily while the, until the heat was off, right? And then, and then come back later to America. Conversely, if you get in trouble in Sicily and you're wanted, they may, you may flee to America. So there was a lot of this back and forth between Sicily and New York in particular that, um, that occurred. Now, as the families became more settled in America and they became more like Americans, you know, they tended to stay. Later in the, like the 19, well, I guess it was always true, but, you know, 40s, 50s and 60s, you saw the mafia in America recruiting uh, mafia members from Sicily to come to America to help them. And these were one of the reasons they wanted that was the anonymity of these individuals. You know, they were not known characters to the police, for example. And also they were could be extremely brutal. <laughs> a lot of times they were like hitmen uh, that they brought over from Sicily who were willing to commit, you know, horrible crimes, whereas it might have been a little bit more difficult for some people here who'd grown up in America to want to, to commit such horrible, you know, acts. In the wider New York Mafia scene in the late 1940s and early 1950s, some serious skullduggery is going on. The head of the Mangano family in New York disappears in 1951, never to be seen again, and his brother is murdered. The underboss of the family, Albert Anastasia, takes over. Anastasia is a fixture in the underworld, He's the former boss of Murder, Inc., a group of Jewish and Italian hitmen who specialised in murdering fellow mobsters. In the 1950s, the mafia was extremely active in the United States. It had uh, families in at least 26 cities across the country. Um, some were bigger than others, obviously. You had very well established the five families the five mafia families in New York City. You had a very strong uh, mafia uh, family in Boston. You had a very strong family in New Jersey. Uh, you had strong families in Philadelphia and in Pittsburgh and in Buffalo. 
and in Detroit and Cleveland and Kansas City and, and Chicago and, and and elsewhere, in Los Angeles, for example. They all were interacting. It was like a syndicate where there was a lot of communication among the different mafia groups when they were engaged in different criminal activities and decisions that were made. Uh, they were becoming increasingly involved in legitimate businesses. In other words, they they would have front businesses that were legitimate that they used as cover for what they were doing illegally behind the scenes. And so the mafia was growing. Uh, it was uh, becoming smarter in many ways. They were more educated and more capable of getting involved in more intricate criminal enterprises like white collar crime, things like that. They were involved, very involved with the unions, with labor, the labor unions in America, and they controlled a large number of unions across the country. There was a, a fair amount of conflict, especially in New York, among the mafia families. This man named uh, uh, Vito Genovese was interested in taking control of really the, the family that had been started by Lucky Luciano. Lucky Luciano kicked out of America in 1946, so he was living in Italy. So his family uh, was being run since then by a man named Frank Costello. Now in 1957, though, Vito Genovese, very jealous of Frank Costello and his position, he, Vito felt that he should be the boss of, the, of that family. So he hired a hitman uh, to try to kill Frank Costello. And it happened right out in front of the apartment building in New York where Frank Costello lived. However, the hitman was not successful. He shot uh, at Costello, but the, the bullet only grazed his ear. And so there was a lot of blood coming out, but uh, he was not uh, fatally injured. But uh, it really, that, that close call prompted Frank Costello to retire, if you will, from the Mahav from the mafia, and Vito Genovese took over. Another rival that Vito Genovese had at that time was uh, Albert Anastasia. And Albert Anastasia was assassinated. He was sitting in a barber chair in that same year, 1957, and he, he was killed. So Vito Genovese kind of took over what later became known as the Genovese crime family, uh, which had been the Luciano family. So there was some there was conflict uh, at that time within the mafia, but for the most part, uh, and then that actually got worse during the '60s and '70s when the Bonanno crime family had a lot of uh, conflict, as well as the Colombo crime families. But in the '50s, really the big the big mover on that was Vito Genovese. Vito Genovese dreamt of becoming the boss of bosses. And now, he feels like this title is within reach. To consolidate his authority, he calls a gathering of Cosa Nostra Dons at the home of another New York crime boss, Joe Barbara, in a sleepy hamlet north of the city. The FBI can't ignore the influx of mobsters into the village and the procession of more than a hundred expensive vehicles parked on the street outside Barbara's home. Some dons have even flown in from Italy and Cuba for the occasion. Federal agents finally act, descending on the conference. 
Some mafiosi manage to flee, scrambling through the woods surrounding the house, but about 60 are captured. Many Cosa Nostra crime families are damaged by the raid, including Barbara's. He faces tax evasion charges, and his business and fortune dwindle. But, like a hydra, the mafia survives. The bosses, charged with conspiracy after the raid, have their convictions overturned in 1960. There's just not enough evidence to pin them to any specific crime. After this disastrous meeting, a lot of mob bosses are unhappy with Vito Genovese. According to some accounts, Lucky Luciano, finally sick of his old friend, may have helped set up the drug deal in which Genovese is implicated. Genovese goes to jail for heroin trafficking, along with his hitman, Vincent Giganti, in 1959, and dies behind bars. Before his death, his former henchman, Joseph Valachi, terrified that Genovese has sent men to kill him, breaks Omerta, the code of silence. He gives away mafia secrets to the authorities, dealing a huge blow to the Cosa Nostra. Lucky Luciano passes away in Naples in the early 1960s of natural causes. In his later years, he appears as a friendly, unremarkable old man, sometimes found chatting to American tourists about how much he misses the States. A crowd of hundreds turns out to watch his horse-drawn hearse move slowly through the cobbled streets. After his death, he's controversially included on Time magazine's list of the 100 most influential men of the 20th century, and dubbed the man who modernised the Mafia. Luciano leaves no children. He once said that he doesn't want his sons growing up with a gangster for a father. As time went on, Mafia leaders often realised that ultimately notoriety paled in comparison to living an honest life. Jeff Schumacher speaks here about how organised crime families eventually came to reject the underworld. I think in the in the early um, early incarnation of the mafia in America, there was there were many second generation individuals who stayed in the you know continued to be involved. So they their dad was in the mafia. So then they became uh, they went into the mafia as well. Um, but that started that was not something that uh, later generations were encouraging. Uh, later generations of Italian Americans wanted their kids to go and be doctors and lawyers and bankers and you know escape the life, as they say, uh, not be part of the life because they could see how you know there is a better way if you can if you can do it. So later generations were not nearly as involved. That, that's also true, but certainly even more so with uh, uh, Irish and and Jewish families they definitely did not want to see their kids go into the into the world uh, into the underworld at all and in fact in the case of the irish many of them made a complete 180 degree switch and they became police officers and uh, 
started enforcing the law rather than uh, committing crime. The final player in this story is the hitman and former boxer, Vincent Giganti. After serving out his jail sentence, he rises through the ranks of the Genovese crime family, reaching the top in the early 1980s. For more than 20 years, he's known as the Odd Father. His eccentricity is legendary. He's often seen walking the streets of Greenwich Village in New York in his dressing gown and slippers talking to himself. People in the neighbourhood wisely give him a wide berth. Behind the scenes, his family is extorting businesses, running workers' unions, dealing drugs, bribing officials, ordering hits. He evades prosecution time and time again, dodging subpoenas by checking himself into mental hospitals as an outpatient. After deliberating for years over whether or not Giganti is competent to stand trial, authorities finally managed to get a conviction in 1997. In 2003, Giganti admits in court that he faked mental illness for decades. Like his mentor Vito Genovese, he too dies behind bars. From classic movies like The Godfather to TV shows like The Sopranos, the Mafia still exercises a powerful hold on our imaginations. Looking at Lucky and Genovese, who ended their lives in exile and in jail, or Giganti, who spent decades living in pretend madness, it's sometimes hard to see exactly why we glamorise it so much. What is it about the Cosa Nostra that really captures our imaginations? Jeff Schumacher shares his ideas and talks about how the media affected the mob. There's no question that the reason... Um, there's like this interesting relationship between our culture and, or, and the mafia, and one feeds off the other and the other feed you know, they feed off each other right so when for example when the movie the godfather uh was released in 1972 at first before when it was being made the mafia members in new york didn't want it to be made they thought it was going to misrepresent them and that it was going to be it was going to call attention to their activities in a way that would be negative for them when the movie came out, many, many mobsters actually really liked the movie. And they not only did like it, they started, it, it became, it had an influence on how they behaved, how they would talk, how they would dress, what kind of decisions they would make. And so you had the, the Godfather, for example, was influenced by what had been in the newspapers, right? What people knew about the mob. And then once it was produced, it started influencing the mobsters themselves. And um, so there's that interesting element. Where to really answer your question, though, I, I think people are are fascinated by organized crime because of one, uh, the personalities that have been involved. These really big personalities like Al Capone and and Lucky Luciano and John Gotti, they're kind of these these bigger than life characters just like you would see in a great movie or a, in a TV series or in politics or whatever. They are very 
they were very well-known people and they had a lot of interesting quirks and, and uh, attitudes that people really appreciate. They could humanize this, this criminal element. Um, the other thing about it is just this notion of getting away with, with these crimes for so long. You know, the whole definition of an organized crime group is that it's a it's a continuous criminal enterprise, right? It's not just one robbery. It's not just one murder. It's something that goes on for years and years and years. And when you it goes on for that period of time, you know, there's certain type, types of life, you know, altering things that you have to do. You have to you, know, you have to be loyal to this to this crime boss even more so than you do to your own family and things like that. And I think that all of that, all of that sort of backstory is what really fascinates people about the mafia. It's like, how does it work, you know, to be involved in this secret society and, you know, how dangerous is it and what kinds of, you know, can you get rich doing this or not? Um, what other benefits are there from it and what are the liabilities there's just a lot that goes into it that I think people really want to know about. It's been more than 20 years now since Vincent Giganti went to jail for the final time, and he's known as one of the last old-school mafia dons. What role does the mafia play in America today, so many years after the events alluded to in Billy Joel's song? We asked Jeff to tell us about the mafia in contemporary American society. So the, the mafia today uh, in America still exists, but it's really a shadow of its former self. You know, what happened in the 60s, 70s, and 80s was that there was a, a, a really significant ramp up of federal uh, prosecutions of uh, organized crime, and they benefited from the use of the RICO statute, which was focused on the ability to convict people of of being involved in organized crime without having to link them directly to specific crimes. Right, so the the boss he become under a RICO uh, case, the bo boss becomes responsible for basically everything all the criminal activity that's happening below him so if somebody murders somebody the boss doesn't have to actually commit the murder to be responsible for it so the rico act really made it possible for the federal government to really crack down on the mob and put dozens and dozens and dozens of these criminal uh, criminals in prison and it really decimated the mob to the point where they uh you know, were shrunk in, in their power and shrunk in their profile, gone even further underground with the, you know, the attempt to not call attention to themselves. But, uh, and, and they've disappeared entirely from many cities. Uh, they are still active in New York City. All five families are still active in New York City. Uh, the, the mafia is still involved in uh, New Jersey, Philadelphia, Chicago. But I wouldn't say too many other cities besides those. And they're not really involved in Las Vegas anymore. Uh, Las Vegas is uh, the corporations have, have kind of taken over here. And the mafia really doesn't have enough uh, money or influence now to become involved here in any significant way. 
Thanks for listening to Since the World's Been Turning. I'm Robin Harrison. Thanks to our special guest, Jeff Schumacher, an accomplished author, former journalist, and the Vice President of Exhibits and Programs at the Mob Museum in Las Vegas. Thanks to Will McGillivray for the introduction music and to our writer, Elena McPhee. Please join us again next time as we continue to explore the people, events and places behind Billy Joel's iconic song. We'll discuss hula hoops, the fun toys that swept America in the late 1950s and which are still popular today. For more episodes and information, you can follow NZ Pods, that's NZPODZ, on Instagram and Facebook, or you can visit our website, www.nzpods.com, that's NZPODZ.com. By giving us reviews and ratings on your podcast service, you help us to share this project with more listeners, so please share your thoughts. We greatly appreciate your help in keeping this project going. Thanks again for listening, and please come back next time to hear more from Since the World's Been Turning.